There are some activities that don't require that you do anything in a particular order. You can just kind of do it as you see fit. I mean, can you imagine going to an amusement park with someone who, when they walk in, they get the map, they see how it's numbered, and they insist that you do everything in order? You'd start off at the lost and found, even though you've not been there long enough to lose anything yet, and you better hope you don't have to go to the bathroom anytime soon because that doesn't come till number 57, and you're not stopping there until you get there. And there are some things that you just don't have to do in order. There are other things that's really important, the order you put them in, isn't it? I mean, imagine that you've got a, a lock that you need to open, and it's a combination lock, and your, your friend tells you, hey, the, the combination includes the numbers 1, 7, 9, 2, 4, and 3, and you say, okay, what order do they come in? And he shrugs and goes, I don't know, I don't remember, but it's no big deal. And 20 minutes later, you realize it is a big deal what order those numbers go in. Some things require the proper ordering. They require priority. And today we're going to begin a brief series through the Old Testament book, the prophetic book of Haggai, or Haggai, depending on how you like it, Haggai or Haggai, it doesn't matter to me, but that's how people say it. And I'm going to warn you that this morning there's going to be a lot of information so that we can understand the book, because we won't be able to understand it unless we see how it fits in the big picture of God's redemptive plan. Now, I know that some people don't like content-heavy messages, and they prefer something with stories, but I feel some responsibility to God's people to help them to comprehend God's word, the whole counsel of God, so to speak, and to help those who are younger in their faith to develop biblical literacy in God's word so they can read the scriptures and understand a bit more about what they're reading as they're reading for themselves. And so we have to do a bit of a background, a bit of a flyover of the Old Testament concerning what brings us to the book of Haggai, because if we don't, we won't get what's going on. We certainly won't understand the importance of what this book says to us and to our lives, or what it meant to the people to whom the prophet originally brought his message. And so we're going to start way, way back in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the pinnacle of his creation was humanity. He created Adam and Eve, a man and a woman, and he made them to rule over his physical creation. In fact, he planted a garden and he placed them in the garden, the garden called Eden. He made them caretakers or stewards to rule with him over that garden. And they were supposed to take care of it and they could learn there all about God through relationship with him, through his creation, and they would rule over it and they would reproduce. This is the mandate that God gave them. Genesis says that God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day, a metaphor for the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve in the garden. Eden was the place where heaven met God's physical creation, earth, where God met his people, to talk with them. In other words, Eden was a temple. Now maybe you know this part of the story. There was a tree in Eden that God commanded Adam and Eve that they could not eat the fruit of that tree. They could eat from any other tree, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they, as a result of the temptation of a serpent in the garden, a symbol of the devil, even Adam decided to eat from the tree and they were banished, they were exiled from the garden forever. And as a result, 
they were banished from the place where heaven met earth and where God came regularly to relate to them, where he walked with them in the cool of the day. However, he gave them a promise that it wouldn't be this way forever, that Eve would bear a son who would crush the serpent's head, undoing the curse and, uh, that had taken place on creation and undoing the separation between God and people. And from that moment, the earth was filled with sin. At one point, God saw that people's thoughts were only on evil all the time, and so he sent a flood to wipe out the population, sparing only Noah and his family who obeyed his voice and built the ark. When the earth was populated again, God began to fulfill his promise to undo the curse that had come upon the earth through the sin of Eve and of Adam. And he started with one man, Abraham. He called Abraham to be set apart, to leave his family, to leave his country, to leave their idolatry and their pagan worship practices. And he promised to make Abraham a great nation, God's own people. Hundreds of years passed and Abraham's family grew under God's direction and under his blessing. They eventually ended up in Egypt where they were prolific, they increased in number, they increased in wealth and in influence so much so that the rulers of Egypt began to get concerned about how much influence and how big the population was getting and so they enslaved them. And for hundreds of years, God's people lived enslaved in Egypt, but God did not forget his promise nor his purpose nor his people. He called a man, Moses, to lead them out of slavery, and through signs and miraculous provision, he freed Abraham's descendants from Egyptian slavery, and he led them to Mount Sinai, where God entered into a covenant or an agreement with them. He would be their God, and they would be his own people, a nation that didn't serve other gods, that didn't create their own laws, but that followed God only, the Lord God, and his ways. He gave them a law to follow. Now note this, the centerpiece of what God gave them at Sinai, the centerpiece of the covenant was that he would be personally present with them. And so he gave Moses blueprints for what we call a tabernacle or a mobile temple, a mobile place where heaven would once again meet earth, where God would come to relate with his people. God was undoing the curse that had been brought upon people because of Eve and Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. God was once again going to dwell among humanity. God's presence went with the Jewish people as he led them to the promised land and eventually the people settled in that land, though it wasn't without problems because they continually rebelled against God and doubted his plans. Once they were settled, God allowed King Solomon, the third king of Israel, to build a permanent structure, a temple where God's presence would dwell, where heaven would meet earth in Jerusalem and where people would worship and honor God. But God's people, Israel, continuously broke his commandments and they did not honor God's presence among them. They were corrupt from top to bottom. They didn't follow God's law. Their country was full of injustice and bribery and greed. Worst of all, idolatry. Sound familiar to anyone? The people who were supposed to worship and follow only the Lord God served a whole array of other so-called gods, little g. And because of this 
God allowed them to be captured by their enemies. It was in 587 BC that the kingdom of Judah in the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem was located, where the temple was, that that city was defeated. And in that year, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and his army captured Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. They tore down its defensive walls and more importantly, they demolished the temple, leveling it and burning it to the ground, taking back to Babylon anything of worth that they found in it. The people of the land, the the Jews, suffered various fates. Some were killed, some fled to other nations, some were captured and exiled to Mesopotamia. Others were allowed to remain in what was left of the ruins of Judah and Jerusalem. After about 50 years, Cyrus, the king of Persia who conquered Babylonia and instituted policies that allowed exiled peoples to return to their homelands and to reinstitute worship to their indigenous gods. And it was at this time that the first wave of exiles returned from Babylon to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple and the city of Jerusalem. These were people who wanted to honor God. After being in exile, they wanted to see the place where heaven met earth restored. They wanted to be a part of a people who would experience a renewal of God's presence dwelling among the people that he had called and set apart for himself. And so they began the process, but they were very quickly discouraged by threats from surrounding nations and the work ground to a halt just after the foundation of the temple was laid. Ezra 4, 4 to 5 tells us that from the time of Cyrus to the time of Darius, about 15 years, no work was done on the temple. Now that displeased the Lord because he wanted there to be this place that represented his honor among his people where he would meet with his people again. And so he decided to send a prophet to the people to show them the error of their ways. They were supposed to be his people. They were supposed to be marked by his presence, but they weren't showing any urgency in honoring him and rebuilding the temple. They allowed comforts and personal concerns and outside threats to dissuade them from the importance of what God called them to do. They were treating the temple as if it was an optional facility rather than the place of God's presence among them. And so we come to Haggai. We don't know much about the man, Haggai, except that he was the prophet that God raised up to address his people's apathy and inactivity and to encourage them to be faithful and to honor God by rebuilding the temple. And as we study Haggai, you'll find a refrain repeated multiple times throughout the messages that he brings to God's people. And it serves as a great A great theme for this series of messages and for us as well. And the theme is this, consider your ways. Think about your life. Think about what you're doing. Look at what's happening to you. Pause and ponder what's going on. And the first message that Haggai brought to the people's consideration concerned their priorities. This morning we're going to put it this way. You should put first things first or you should put God first would be another way to say it. Before we begin, I just want to pray and ask for God's blessing as we, as we start looking at this book because I believe it has some important things to say to us as individuals and as the body of Christ for our purposes, our mission, and our faith going forward with what God has for us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for your word. Father, sometimes we find it difficult to receive your word because your word can be cutting. The New Testament says 
that your word is like a two-edged sword. It divides between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. And Lord, if we're honest, sometimes we would prefer you to leave the intentions of our hearts alone. But Father, this morning we surrender those intentions and motivations to you. Lord, the very innermost parts of our lives where our, our motives arise from, our hearts, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to yield them to you, to be surrendered to you. Father, we pray that you'd help us not to react out of, out of offense or bitterness against what your word says because we think that it touches on things that we would prefer it not. But Lord, that you would help us with the intention and courage of Joshua to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin today by reading Haggai 1, 1 to 2. It says this, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, or this was August 29, 520 B.C., the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. When the small remnant of people first returned from exile in Babylon, they began rebuilding the temple, but their the people surrounding them from other tribes and other little city nations, city states in the area, they were against it. They didn't want to see them come to any prominence or power for fear that it would upset the, the sort of political and financial stability of the region. And so they opposed them. They wrote letters to the emperor in, in, uh, in Babylon and then in Persia to try to get them to stop. They threatened them with all kinds of threats. And so for 15 years, no work had been done on the temple and the foundation lay ready but totally unused. Notice that the emphasis that is placed on who is in charge, not only dating the prophecy by this, but I think helping us to understand the context in which Haggai came to speak the word of God. First we read about Darius, emperor of Persia, the most powerful man in the world. I've got a map to show you the, the empire that he ruled. He ruled a vast empire of which Jerusalem and Judah were very minor parts. Under Darius, the Persian Empire stretched all the way from the western edge of India to Egypt. And if you think about this in terms of modern nations, he ruled all the territory of Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, all the other stand nations, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, parts of Azerbaijan and Georgia, parts of Bulgaria and Greece, a bit of Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, part of Egypt, and a bit of Libya. And so as far as it concerned the Jews, this guy ruled the world. And God's word came to the leaders of the Jews, the political leader or governor, Zerubbabel, and the spiritual leader or priest, Joshua. These guys were important to the Jewish people, but in the grand scheme of this, they didn't mean anything. They, they had no power, none whatsoever. They had zero influence. And now we get to the good part. Notice from whom the message comes. It says in verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts. Who is the Lord of hosts? This title was used for God a lot by the prophets. It could sometimes refer to God as the Lord or leader of Israel's armies, but the title was very frequently used by the prophets who came after Israel was exiled, when Israel had no army. Haggai is a book with only two chapters, and in this short book, it's used 
14 times. He's called the Lord of hosts 14 times. It doesn't mean that God leads Israel's armies here because, well, Israel didn't have any armies to lead. Instead, it means something at this point in history like the Lord Almighty, the Lord who controls the powers of both heaven and earth. He has all power at his disposal. It looked like Darius had all the authority. Darius certainly had a host, a military word describing troops. He had an army, the biggest one, but he was not the Lord of hosts. It looked like the remnant of Jews in Jerusalem were just a speck in an enormous empire and were at the whims of distant dictators and nearby enemies, but they weren't because the Lord of hosts had spoken. And in a moment, we'll examine some of the excuses they made for not rebuilding the temple, but all of those excuses fall apart because the Lord of hosts has spoken. The guy, that's to put it too flippantly probably, the person, the Lord with the most power had spoken and told them what they ought to do in spite of how things looked for them. And if you're going to put first things first in your life, you need to remember who is in charge. It's easy to set our eyes on the things of this world, what's going on on earth. We can feel also like our lives are controlled by policies made by distant politicians and we can feel threatened by cultural forces and so we can be afraid to stand for what's right to carry out God's purposes, to put him first, to be witnesses for Christ, or to think that what we do matters at all. What what, what can I do? I'm just a a speck, in a, a cog in the grand scheme of things. Maybe it doesn't matter if I obey and serve the Lord. Maybe just a little religious practice and private faith is enough. After all, I'm not going to accomplish much anyway. We're just a little church in a little town in western Massachusetts. Most people in the country don't know anything in Massachusetts outside of Boston exists at all. They don't know we're alive. What difference does it make? So why should I try? We serve and honor God not because we can put the pieces together to figure out how he's gonna make us significant. We serve and honor the Lord because he is significant, because he is the Lord of hosts. And in spite of what it might look like, and in spite of the fact that nobody may recognize or that we may feel like we don't have a lot of influence, the prophet Haggai comes into a situation where they had no influence, where they had no recourse, and he says to them, thus says the Lord of hosts. And they needed to pay attention and listen because their future did not depend on what Darius did but upon what the Lord of hosts commanded them to do. There are things going on that we cannot understand. There are things that God will do through us that we can't foresee. So we walk by faith in the command of the Lord of hosts who has all authority in heaven and on earth. You can put first things first by remembering who's actually in charge. And before we move on, I want to talk about one other important piece in this verse because it talks about other leaders as well. In the next verse, the the prophet Haggai will begin to address the people of the community, but first, God addressed the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. They were going to play an important part, a, a role in leading the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And so God starts with a message to them. And this reminds us that God delegates authority to leaders who have a stewardship to carry out on his behalf. 
That's what God did in Eden with Adam and Eve. It's what God did with Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and Zerubbabel and Joshua, and now he does it with us. And when Haggai first speaks to Zerubbabel and Joshua, he simply reminds them of the excuses the people are making. Isn't that an interesting message to bring? Something they probably already knew. He reminds them what the people are saying. It's not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Apparently, the leaders had been listening to the excuses of the people and failing to lead. Their job wasn't to listen to the excuses of people, but to listen to the voice of the Lord and then lead the people to follow the Lord of hosts rather than following their own hearts. And that's still the responsibility of leaders. It's the responsibility of leaders in the church. And because of the Holy Spirit, there is a democratization of God's presence and his gifts and and of authority that the New Testament reveals. But the Bible still reveals, even in the New Testament, that leaders were appointed in the churches to help to direct those churches. And this is still the role of leadership in the church, of pastors or elders or deacons or deaconesses. And our primary responsibility is not to try and respond to all the various voices we might hear, but to listen to the voice of the Lord and lead people to follow his voice because the Lord of hosts has spoken. But I wanna point out another area of really, really important leadership, the family. I've heard a concerning conversation in Christian circles lately about demons and generational curses and bloodline curses. It seems like people are looking for a formula to identify what those curses might be and then try to break those curses. And two things concern me deeply about this. One is that the Bible says very little, if anything, about so-called generational curses, but it's being sensationalized. The second concern is that this teaching seems to describe a formulaic prayer as authority, substituting that for the real authority and stewardship the scripture describes that God has given to parents. There's a pattern in scripture for our families and how we are to lead them. It goes from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, when God's people Israel had come into the promised land and were about to settle into their lives in that land, their leader, Joshua, Moses' successor, realized their weakness and how they would likely turn away from following the Lord. There were so many other nations around them worshiping so many other gods and Joshua didn't think Israel would remain pure. Not only that, but their own parents had been idolaters in Egypt and in the wilderness. So in an impassioned plea, just prior to his death, Joshua challenges them with this famous statement. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, notice this, and my house, we will serve the Lord. There was false worship that was being passed from generation to generation. How would that be broken? It would be broken when one generation made a decision to repent and serve the Lord only. How could Joshua say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Because God had given him stewardship, the responsibility to lead his family, and he was making a stand in that stewardship, in that authority. And the same idea carries all the way through Scripture into the New Testament. When Paul and Silas were imprisoned and miraculously set free from their imprisonment in Philippi, the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself. He knew he'd be in big trouble because all the prisoners had 
been set free, but as he was about to kill himself, the apostle Paul stopped him, and the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And listen to what Paul and Silas tell him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, was Paul saying that there is some kind of spiritual trickle-down effect with salvation, that it gets mysteriously passed from the father to the children or to the family, even if they don't want to, even if they are against it and rebellious against it? I don't think so. I think Paul knew that the household structure of the time, the way that it was set up, meant that where the dad went, the family was going to follow. That was the expectation. And while we don't intentionally structure family so much in our culture this way anymore, the same fact still holds true. God has delegated authority to parents, particularly to fathers, to lead their families. And this starts with those husbands and those fathers, hopefully working together with wives. And and where there isn't a father present, then a mother must pick up that responsibility. Let me take you how this relates to generational curses. Probably the most central passage regarding spiritual warfare in the New Testament is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17, where we read about the armor of God. And there Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. And we like to talk with fascination about what it means to put on the helmet of salvation, what it means to pick up the shield of faith. But let me suggest to you that because this passage comes at the end of the book, it functions as a summary for what Paul has already written. In other words, if you want to put on the armor of God and stand against the schemes of Satan, the way to do it is not a new magic formula that you invent out of the words of Ephesians 6. It is to obey what the apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 through 5. And then you have the armor of God on You're walking in his faith. You're walking in his power. You're walking in righteousness. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says, put on the full armor of God and stand in it. And interestingly, just prior to this passage about the armor of God, Paul writes what is known as a household code. He tells Christian families how to relate to one another. To summarize that, he says this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, based on the biblical evidence from both the Old and New Testaments, let me suggest to you, especially to you parents, that like the first spiritual warfare that took place in the Garden of Eden, the spiritual warfare you do on behalf of your family will involve primarily taking responsibility for the things that God has placed in your care. He has given you authority as the leader of your family, and spiritual warfare will not be so much about identifying generational curses as about making the decision the Bible calls you to make. Choose today who you will serve, and then leading your family to do the same. The problems that your kids face won't be solved because you name a demon. They will be solved as you submit to the Lord and take up the responsibility that he has given to you. You need to set an example of prioritizing God in your life and then lead your family to do the same thing. They should see your love for God's word. They should note the importance of prayer in your life and you should raise them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Well, pastor, I can't make my kids serve the Lord. 
No, you can't determine over the long run, over the course of their whole lives, whether they will honor God from their hearts, but you sure can set a good course for them. Pastor, I can't make my children read God's word. Maybe not, but you can sure make them listen as you read it. Pastor, my kids won't sit still long enough to pray. Have you been consistent enough to create the right expectations in their lives and patterns so that they know what's coming and expect it's time to pray? Pastor, I can't make my teenage daughter come to church. She'll be mad at me and have a bad attitude. This is my favorite one. Your teenage daughter's gonna be mad at you and have a bad attitude anyway. You certainly can make her come to church. You certainly can make her come. If she has a bad attitude about school, do you let her stay home days on end? If your kids complain unless they get mac and cheese with a side of potato chips every day for lunch, do you give that to them? No, of course, I hope not. Sadly though, many parents do. They're busy listening to the voices of the excuses their children are making, which is what Haggai came and said to Zerubbabel and Joshua. They're listening, not leading. They're listening to complaint and excuse instead of listening to the Lord of hosts and leading the way that they should be and serving the Lord. But God did not put you in your kids' lives so that you could cater to their complaints, but so that you could listen to the voice of the Lord and then lead them to obey whatever their attitude is right now so that one day, by his grace, they might come to realize that the pattern you set in their lives is a blessing and they will bless you and they will bless the Lord and serve him because you took the authority God gave you as a dad, as a mom, as the leader of your household, and you used it as he intended. That's how you break a generational curse. You don't break a generational curse by naming a demon. You break a generational curse by being consistent as a mom or dad and putting on the armor of God in that consistency and teaching your children a new pattern of living that honors God rather than serving other things. You put God first and you break the curse that has come from the past. Parents, God made you leaders in your house so that you can set the direction for the future, not so that you can listen to voices making excuses. He speaks to the leaders first so that they can set the course. He's speaking to you today. Choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Don't be afraid or think that you have to see how God is going to work everything out. At Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him, and that we should go and make disciples. Jesus was claiming there the authority of the Lord of hosts. Remember, the Lord of hosts means God Almighty, the Lord who has power over everything in heaven and earth. Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying, I'm the Lord of hosts, and my power I give to you is to make disciples in my name. Our job as leaders in the church, leaders in our jobs, leaders in the community, or leaders in our homes is not to listen to the excuses that are being made for why we're not obeying the Lord, but to listen to the voice of the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, and believe him above every voice and every appearance that might come against us. And in this way, by putting God first and letting leaders lead as they should, we break the curse of the past and we set a new direction for the future. Listen to verses three to four. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, meaning the temple, lies in ruins? Haggai is now talking to the whole community of believers. 
of, of Jews there in Jerusalem who had returned to rebuild the temple. They were all making the excuse that it wasn't yet time to build the house of the Lord. And as we continue to study the book of Haggai in coming weeks, we'll see that they were going through a drought their farming wasn't as productive as they had hoped, and as a result, they were apparently going through financial hardships. And on top of that, the surrounding nations were still opposed to this rebuilding. They felt threatened by it, or, and so they had, they had stopped what they had set out to do. And you can read about this in the book of Ezra. And so the work of the temple had stopped for 15 years, and, and people excused themselves, saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. How pious we can make our excuses sound sometimes. We could put these into contemporary Christianese and it would sound something like, this isn't God's perfect timing. Or, this just isn't the season for that. But the truth is, it's always the season to put God first and do what honors him. The people were waiting around for the perfect circumstances, an open door in our language. Meanwhile, God expected them to simply obey because he was the Lord of hosts. Have you ever made a pious-sounding excuse for not honoring God? Well, this is just a really busy season in our family's life, so that's why we haven't been at church. Translation, there are things more important to us than honoring God and teaching our children to do the same. Once I'm in a better place financially, I'll honor God with my resources by tithing, giving to missions, giving to the poor. Translation, my giving is based on convenience, not obedience to God. Now, I'm not saying that, that you should be foolish or impoverish yourself giving to the church. By no means. Neither do I want to bring condemnation on those who don't have much to give. That's not my intent at all. But when it comes to our time and resources, the pattern that we find in the Bible is not giving God the leftovers, but giving him what comes first and honoring him by prioritizing service and giving to his kingdom. And there are some who haven't even returned to church yet from COVID. You're still saying you're not sure it's time to go back to church. It's time to go to work. It's time to go to school. It's time to go to the grocery store. It's time to go to the movie theater. It's time to go to the amusement park, but not to prioritize church. I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. Let me just challenge you. Are you here consistently? Do your kids see that worship with other believers and fellowship and encouragement according to the commands of scripture are a priority, are a first in your life? Often, excuses are an indication that there is a misplaced priority. If something isn't out of order, we don't usually feel the need to make an excuse. So, when you talk to other believers and you find yourself making excuses for why you haven't been at church, haven't been involved, it may be time to Consider your ways. If in your thoughts, the inner dialogue of your heart and your mind, you find yourself constantly making excuses to yourself for why you aren't doing what you know ought to be a priority in your life, you may need to consider your ways. If you're constantly beginning your prayers, Lord, I know I should, but it might be time for you to consider your ways. When compared to the reality of their lives, the excuse the people made for not rebuilding the temple turned out to be lame. They said the time for building God's house hasn't yet come. Meanwhile, apparently the time for them to put roofs over their own heads, panels up on their house walls, and maybe apparently decorate and try to make themselves comfortable, that time had come. The issue wasn't one of timing. 
It was a problem of priority. Some things in life don't require a particular order, but there are other things that have life-changing, perhaps even eternity-changing consequences if you don't prioritize them. If you spend money on wants before paying for needs, there will be consequences. If you speak before listening, you'll look like a fool. And this is why Jesus teaches us to order our lives in this way. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Notice that Jesus lived the kind of life that prioritized the kingdom of God above everything else. In fact, this was so much the case that he went to the cross out of obedience to the Father. Hebrews 5, 8 to 9 teaches us, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is both the pattern and the strength for those who will prioritize their lives and put God first. Today, I wanna challenge you that if you've never put God first in your life, this is an opportunity for you to do that. If you've never confessed faith in Christ and you've never recognized that religion or relationship with God is something more than just hey, I I believe a few things, maybe I went to church once or twice this year, I prayed a prayer or something like that. You've never realized that, that actually relationship with God is much more than that. It means you surrender your life to him. You confess that Jesus is Lord. That means what we read today, that he's the Lord of hosts. He has all the power in heaven and on earth. You recognize that he is Lord. You believe that he got that power because he died for your sin and God raised him from the dead. And then you recognize that You haven't prioritized that. And if anyone's voice deserves priority, it's Jesus. Because he's the Lord who has all authority. And maybe for you, and and I'm probably this morning speaking more to people, maybe you've been around church for a long time, you've got some kind of background understanding of what salvation is, maybe you even prayed the sinner's prayer at one time but you've not surrendered your life to the Lord and said, he's the Lord of hosts, he's Lord of my life. I've chosen whom I'm going to serve, not just whom I'm gonna give lip service to, not just whom I'm going to you know, talk about once in a while, or I'm just gonna attend a service once in a while, but you say, I'm gonna throw my life on him. I'm gonna say, he's Lord, he's everything. I put my faith in him, I put my trust in him. He's going to lead me from here on. His voice is gonna be the one that I listen to as I read his word and listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna listen to the voice of the Lord of hosts. I'm gonna listen to Jesus. And I'm gonna recognize that I can't be saved on my own. That I can't do enough good works. That I can't just pray a simple prayer. That I can't just, I can't just, I can't just show up once in a while and think that's what it means to be saved. But what I have to do is call on the name of the Lord trusting him that he is Lord, surrendering my life to him, believing in him, and offering my all to him. I'm gonna ask the congregation, if you just close your eyes for just a moment, just bow your head for just a moment, that's you. You don't have a relationship with God like I just described. You've not confessed. Maybe you've raised a hand in the past. Maybe you prayed the prayer at some point in the past, but you have not said, he's the Lord of my life. And you've confessed as the scripture teaches us, he is Lord.
you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, like what I just described today, and you want to begin that, it doesn't start because you know the right words to pray. It starts because you have confessed and believed on Christ. It doesn't start because you came to church one day. It starts because you have confessed that Jesus is Lord and you're going to listen to his voice in your life and you're going to believe him for the righteousness you need and the forgiveness you need, the salvation that you need. If you don't have that kind of salvation from Jesus by faith this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something simple just to indicate that that's what you want to do, that you want to confess this morning that Jesus is Lord. You want to believe him for salvation. Would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody like that? Lifting up your hand doesn't save you. Any prayer I pray won't save you. But if you're saying, I've heard the word of the Lord and I want to confess and believe Jesus, your faith in him as he comes to you saves you. And so if, if you don't have that kind of relationship, if you have not placed your faith in Christ like I've described this morning, would you just lift up your hand so that I can have the privilege of praying with you? Is there anyone like that? I'm gonna wait for just a minute. Thank you, ma'am. Is there anybody else? You don't have a relationship with God through faith in Christ and you wanna begin that this morning. We're gonna pray this prayer. This prayer again doesn't save you. It's not the words that I come up with that save you. Jesus saves you as you put your faith in him. Would you make this prayer your own? Would you confess your trust, your faith in Jesus this morning? Heavenly Father, I come to you today and I recognize that you've not been the priority. I've thought of you in some kind of religious terms. I've, I've at times prayed and, and I've said I believe in God, but I recognize today that you have not been the Lord of my life. I pray that you would forgive me, that I've served and worshiped other things, that I've made other things the priority in my life. Today, I recognize that I should be listening to your voice. And today, Lord, I've heard your voice through the preaching of the word of God and by the Holy Spirit. And I confess my sin, my need for a savior. And I confess my faith in you, Jesus. I confess that you are Lord. And I wanna follow you. I wanna hear your voice and be led by you, the Lord of hosts. Please forgive me, make me new, and lead me in your strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Just a moment, there are gonna be some uh, pastors, prayer partners who will be here praying with people. If you raise your hand and pray, or if you wish you would have, I'd encourage you to come and find one of us so that we can pray with you, give you some further direction. Where do you go from here in walking with Christ? But I wanna give the rest of us a chance to respond and just ask this question, are there things in your life that are out of order? As a parent, are you listening to the excuses your kids make and then making your own excuses for why you aren't leading them in the ways of the Lord? Are you looking for easy tricks, even if they're Christian sounding tricks, for how to fix your kids instead of choosing who you will serve and standing your ground in the authority that God gave parents to lead their children? Have you been neglecting to gather together and worship with believers? Have you been afraid to lead others to follow Christ for fear of how they'll react? Have you given up the stewardship that God has put in your life? the authority he's given you to lead. Consider your ways. Remember who's really in charge. Cut out the excuses. Choose today whom you will serve. Pastors and prayer partners, if you'd go ahead and make your way forward. If this morning you sense the Lord stirring in your heart, you say, I just wanna respond. I, I, wanna, I wanna respond by saying, I'm putting you first today, Lord. I'm gonna listen to the voice of the Lord of hosts. There are areas in my life where I've been afraid 
to respond. I've been afraid to lead. I've been afraid to take the stewardship and authority that God has given. I haven't put first things first. There have been things in my life that have been out of order. Today, I want to respond to his voice. And I want to honor him. And you just want to spend a few moments seeking him. Would you just make your way forward even now? This isn't the walk of shame. This isn't something like that. This is just an opportunity for us as a congregation to say, Lord, I want to put you first in every part of my life. I want to put first things first. I don't want to allow my priorities to get skewed and twisted by the voices of this world and excuses that are made and the complaints that I hear other people making. But what I want to do is allow you to set the direction. I want to let you speak the words of direction in my life. And I want to have the boldness and the, and the courage that it takes to lead in the way that you've called me to lead. If that's you, would you just take a moment? And congregation, would you stand with me? And for the next few moments, would you just begin to lift up your voice and pray? And let's ask the Lord that he would encourage us and enable us as his people to put first things first, not to get things out of priority, but to listen to the voice of the Lord of hosts and allow him to set the direction. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we love you and thank you for the grace you've given us and for the strength that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have made him both Lord and Savior. And we thank you that you have made him the Lord of hosts, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Lord, we confess that there are so many voices that we hear speaking. Lord, there are so many times that we hear the threats of this world. We hear the voices of the world. We hear voices of concern and complaint about the future. We hear excuses that are being made by other people. And we sometimes succumb to those things. And rather than prioritizing you as we should, we get our orders mixed up. We get out of alignment with what you want to do. We're no longer listening to you. We're no longer putting you first. We pay lip service, but we're not pursuing you like we should. We pray for your forgiveness. Father, today we pray that you would lead us according to your voice, that we might hear with clarity through your word and by your Holy Spirit, the voice of the Lord of hosts speaking to us, convicting us, challenging us, encouraging us, pushing us to pursue a life that's led by putting you first rather than a life in which we think we're just adding you on to what we're already doing. Father, we ask that you would help us to approach you as a church with an attitude of humility and surrender, that we might be yielded to you, that rather than, than thinking that we're going to set the direction, we would be listening to you and how you want to set that direction. Father, I want to pray for parents today as they face a particularly daunting task in our culture. And their kids are often hearing from peers and from friends, maybe even from family members sometimes. They're hearing things that are out of order. Their priorities are misplaced. And sometimes, Lord, as parents, it's difficult to know how strong to be, how firm to be, how many, how many battles we have to fight. How many times we have to give the, the same direction and help children to walk in obedience. We ask God for patience. That includes perseverance in doing what's right. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us not to be worn down, but encouraged in you, able to lead the way that we ought to. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be men and women of your word, listening to your voice, men and women of prayer, hearing what you would say so that when it comes time to lead our children, we would not back down or allow excuses to be what fills our ears, but that we would hear you saying, be strong and courageous. I am the Lord of hosts. 
do what I say. I've put you in these children's lives, not that they might lead you, but that you might lead them toward me. Lord, I pray that you'd give us the strength and tenacity to do that. I pray for the leaders of this church. God, I ask that you would help us to lead according to the voice of the Lord of hosts. I pray, God, that you would help us to be listening to you and and leading the way that we ought to. Father, I ask that you would help there to be a clarity in that leadership and, and, uh, and not confusion or fear. Lord, I pray that you would help us who who are leading in our communities or in our jobs. Father, that you would help us to be those who prioritize without fear that others might see, I put God first. I, I can't do that. I can't be there. I can't participate. I'm going to do this instead. And they will see that we prioritize in all things the worship and honor of the Lord. We thank you for that, God, and we ask that you would give us the strength to do this. We know that we cannot do it in our own might, but your word tells us that when we're weak and when we need help, we can come to the Lord of hosts, to Jesus, who's made a way for us to enter your presence, and we can seek the help we need. And so today we seek that help. By the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us, encourage us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, we believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you, congregation, for worshiping and praying together this morning. If you would like prayer, our prayer partners are here. We would love to be able to pray with you. Otherwise, we will see you again as we continue to worship and pray together on Wednesday evening. Go and be a people who prioritize God, His presence, and His purposes in your lives. Until Wednesday, go in His grace and in His peace.